And now we want to share something special with our listeners, introducing Lit and Lit Extra, the new hot sauce IEX just created. We're calling it the official unofficial hot sauce of the stock market. It's a perfect blend of spice and high performance flavor. You'll definitely want to get your hands on some. You can check it out at iextrading.com slash podcast to get your fix while supplies last or tag us at IEX and let us know how you like it. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Over to you, JR. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. Welcome, Spencer <laughs> Minton. Yes. Once again, once again, he jumped the gun. But yes, our very okay. special right. guest Sorry. today is, 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 is a friend of ours. There. It's not a secret, John. It's okay. okay. Spencer right. Midland from ITA Group. We appreciate you being on. Um, Spencer is a senior analyst at ITA Group focused on capital markets. And we thought we'd ask him a bunch of questions here on 2021 and all predictions going forward. But um, specialized in front office trading technology, EMS, OMS, market data platforms, exchange traded funds, emerging financial technology products. Sounds much smarter than you, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you never miss an opportunity to just get a dig. No, in I won't. And some, I never will. Some gratuitous. All right. Let our guests speak. Spencer, thank you for joining us. And maybe tell us a little about yourself and your firm. And then I, I, I'd love to know, uh, ITE spelled I-A-I-T-E and Anything about that name would be interesting because I have always have difficulty pronouncing it. And I've known my buddy there, Sang Lee, for probably 12 years. You know, I've, I've been at the firm coming up on six and a half years. And I'd say almost nine out of 10 meetings that I walk into, it starts out with how do you pronounce the firm's name? It is, it is, <laughs> it is, it is what people say, you know, do you pronounce it IT? Do you guys fix printers? What, you know, what, what's up with this name? Actually, it, you know, I, I think, I don't think everybody at the firm knows, but um, as far as I understand, then the, it's a, an Asian word uh, and it, it means different things in different languages. And depending upon who's using the word, it can mean partner, it can mean advisor, it could mean competitor. So when they were thinking about the name, when the four partners got together and picked the name, I think Sang's put it out there. And one of these decisions that you just make, you don't think is going to be so impactful and it just carries on forever. And the firm's been around mm -hmm. 15 years and every conversation begins. How do you pronounce the firm's name? And, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, well, I guess so, I was going to say, it's, I like yeah, short I for all right, you know. I oh, remember the song. Hey, oh, I is that what you're thinking of, John? No, you're not. Mm, He's no, looking very no, blank at no, me. No, well, I, I guess it's a memorable name, even if people remember it for not being able to pronounce it. So good marketing. Well done. <laughs> so so I, I thought what we would do is um, you know, we we've done some recent podcasts um in December. I think they were our 34th and 36th podcast, Jay, and I can't believe uh, they kept us <laughs> on after the first Christ, one. It's, I can't believe we've done I feel that fucking name. old or something, yeah. but I, mm. I mean, in our 34th one, we had um, a podcast co-hosts of it. It's a podcast called Insecurities. It was uh, Chris and Kurt. It was fantastic. And we talked about sort of buybacks, uh, enforcement, uh, who'll be sitting in the big chair at the SEC. Now, this was recorded in November. We now know that it's Gary Gensler. And then we had another more macro one on uh, the Biden administration that we did with Henrietta Trace from Veda Partners in December. And we thought we'd bring this one back to like the trading space, right? So first couple of months of 2021, uh, it's been a little bit crazy. There's a lot more scrutiny on trading. Really, what happened? Something happened? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm, 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 I'm hoping you can talk to it because JR <laughs> and I have glazed over eyes, right, John? 
Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I have no idea what's freaking going on. Um, this, uh, this retail boom is completely flummoxed to me. I can't figure out what's going on in the market. So maybe you'll be able to clear it up for us. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess our question, you know, there's no golden ticket answer here, is, but like, it's, it's been a little crazy, obviously. And I, you know, I guess first question is, how do you think the regulators will look at this, and will, will it shift their focus? And also coupled with that question, how are the big buy side and sell side players looking at this? What, what are you hearing out there in the industry? So, you know, it, it's interesting. You talk to sort of six people, you get 12 opinions on this topic, right? And we have, <laughs> and we have sort of been, you know, out there. Um, and it, it's difficult because, you know, you rightly so ask about the regulators uh, and what they're going to do. Um, but there's a lot of optics around all of this, right? There's, and of course, in this really crazy political environment that we're in, you know, who would have thought, you know, AOC and Cruz elope to Mexico and Trump <laughs> officiates the wedding, right? Like who, who, who would have thought it, right? Um, but I think there's a lot of issues that, that have been brought up, topics around like market manipulation and, um, you know, retail versus institutional participants and so the role of social media and all these sorts of things. Um, you know, th these are our questions that we've been talking about for years, right? This is, these are topics that are not going away and I don't think they're ever gonna go away in my lifetime in terms of what defines manipulation and all these sorts of things. But I think there are some really interesting, you know, with respect to the institutional market, I think there are really some interesting, you know, topics that this sort of teases at and brings up that we're gonna be talking about. What are those issues, right? We're gonna be talking about in 2021 as a consequence of what happened, issues around transparency and reporting, Right, um, payment for order flow, which for better or for worse is back in the back in the spotlight again. Um, and then, interestingly enough, the two that I really, you know, surprisingly, not that I'm a middle or back office guy, but you know, I have really, you know, the issues around T plus two and 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 moving to a T plus one or a T plus zero environment and, and collateral, you know, management and the issues that Robinhood suffered from. I think that's going to get some 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 attention. And then the other one, which is a passion of mine for a variety of reasons is sort of the topic of reg show, right? And the whole thing about, you know, rule 204 and failure to delivers and, you know, how do we end up seeing short interest be more than shares outstanding? Spencer, would you mind as you talk reg show? Cause it's a, it's actually right. a, a very good topic. Yeah. So, you know, th this was a rule. Um, sh what does SHO stand for again? Short, uh, short held order. Is it? What short. Is that what it stands for? I can't even remember. <laughs> I, oh, boy, that's no, I worked at the SEC. I've John, never knew. John, you were in the SEC. See at the time, I know. You don't I have know? no, I know friggin' clue. No, no idea. You know, but but yeah. this is a this is a, a a rule that came around in I think 2005 that is sort of uh, the next generation of a previous rule that has a lot to do with how do we handle short selling in the United States, um, and it's all about issues like, um, you know getting affirmative borrows from people that own the stock to make sure that you're not doing naked shorting. Um, you know, things like if you're, if you don't have the stock, how long do you have in order to deliver it? Um, what are the penalties involved if a, if a participant can't deliver the stock that, that their client shorted or if they shorted themselves and what's the buy-in procedures. It's, it's, it's an interesting rule. Um, but I think, you know, what, what, what the, the takeaways for me is, in contrast to how a lot of other markets operate and sort of how they govern the short selling rules, um, you know, in Asia, there are a lot of markets that prevent things like what we see with GameStop by sheer, you know, by 
hard locates, um, you know, all kinds of things that they do. But in, in, in the United States, reg show is relatively punitive in nature, right? Um, the idea being that, um, you know, as long as you're operating within the boundaries of the law, you're okay. Uh, and if you violate in terms of failing, you know, failing to deliver, we're going to penalize you, um, you know, with, 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 uh, with uh, you know, fines if you fail. You know, no one would say they do this, but the question is, are you making enough to cover the penalty that you're going to incur, right? Or are you making enough by lending the shares out to your client? Um, anyway, it's a complicated rule, but it, it, it all, it's all about governing short selling. And over the past couple of years, especially following sort of 2007 and 2008, we've seen several sort of you know, events. Uh, it's funny because I heard somebody say yesterday and called what's going on with GameStop unprecedented. And I sort of was think I scratched my head and I said, you know, it's not that unprecedented. We had issues related to overstock and Patrick Byrne, you know, was all <laughs> over the market and all over the industry, sort of the pariah saying their stocks are being, are being, you know, under their targeted. Um, you had issues very similar that, you know, we see issues like with Dole in 2000, you know, the Dole Pineapple Company having proxy you know, uh, proxy voting issues with the settlement that they had. Um, we've seen more recently, you know, Professor Jim Angel from Georgetown, he rightly so put in his comment letter talking about a, a, a funware and, a, and, a, and a, um, a special purpose acquisition vehicle that had all kinds of problems. And then, you know, if you met, you know, some of you may remember a hot topic in sort of the, the early part of the last decade was all about short selling of ETFs and securities lending either of the ETFs themselves or the names inside of the holdings and how these yeah. firms utilize short selling. And mm -hmm. um, th so this is not really that new. We've just been dealing with these issues over and over again. And slowly but surely, the regulators tighten up the rules, but they're not really plugging. If there are loopholes, and I'm not sort of you know, taking a stance there, even though I do have some opinions, those loopholes aren't exactly getting plugged. Um, so I think that's what that's what's going to get attention over the next couple of months. Do you think by attention, they're going to bring it back to, I, I believe, like you said earlier, like in Asia, where there's just much uh, stricter rules on the locate and the locate just means in English that you actually, you know, have the stock to short, right? Do you, do you think we're going to get to something like that? Um, and to what extent, if you know, or have a have a premise on it, uh, would you think it would have uh, impacted the mess that was GameStop over the past month? Yeah, you know, um, I'd like to think that there's going to be some, uh, well, I'd like to think that there might be some some rules that affect, uh, you know, how the securities lending business works in the U.S. Um, but, you know, I think this is one of the things where, you know, it's not necessarily systemic. Um, you know, that we see these problems over and over again, yep. the gain of a lot of attention, and then it kind of goes away. Um, and I don't think it's something that affects a broad sector of the industry, that it's something like, for example, management of collateral, and how much how much money, you know, how much capital these, you know, with net capital requirements. And, and, you know, I think that's more likely to get attention. It's a little more sexier, the whole potential move to DLT to solve these problems. It's very current. Reg show is kind of boring, uh, and people have a short memory. Um, and it's questionable whether or not, uh, I, I guess the other issue is, I don't think the industry is necessarily behind changing it, right? I, I think the securities lending business is one of the last, uh, at least in the listed you know, equity space, an opportunity where the broker dealers are able to make some some good money. And, you know, short selling has its role. I'm certainly not someone who's anti-short selling, but I do appreciate, you know, CFOs who run, 
you know, who, who are managing these companies and uh, want to understand why is there for every buyer, there's nine shares selling, right? It's a simple supply and demand equation, right? If you only have one buyer propping it up and nine people shorting it down, stock's going to go down. And is that, is that true price discovery? Is that right. really well, price discovery? Well, I gather that the, the stock lending business is still a relatively high margin business. And, and so when you talk about these retail brokers, um, one of the ways they make money is by, you know, lending out their shares. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to, along with the payment for order flow uh, payments, wouldn't be able to give people zero commissions. Um, so it's a it's a it's a significant. But I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned the settlement um, cycle we're recording this about um, a week after this House hearing on uh, GameStop and uh, related uh, trading activities. And one of the things that struck me was that it was a recurring theme by Vlad Tenev and, um, and Ken Griffin um, that, you know, the thing that you really need to look at is the settlement cycle. Um, I, frankly, I think is they, didn't, they, they don't want you to look at payment for order flow or conflicts involving internalization or all that. So let's look at the settlement cycle. Um, Vlad in particular was proposing you ought to do like real-time settlement. And my instinctive reaction is, well, that doesn't, I don't know how that decreases the amount of risk because there are often a lot of problems that you got to sort out um, before uh, you actually have to settle it. it that, and, and it also seems a bit impractical. I don't know if other people, anyway, interested to get your thoughts about whether um, a move up to, to next day settlement makes sense and how much does that have to do with the issues that have been raised in the, um, you know, the Robin Hood GameStop um, controversy? So, you know, just yesterday, and it's, it's good that you're, you're sort of marked to, marked to marking when we're having this conversation, you know, but just yesterday, uh, DTCC made an announcement, right? Uh, I don't know if you all saw it, that, you know, they're putting distributed ledger technology front and center of the shift to T plus one, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I would tend to agree with uh, Murray, um, about, you know, who heads up their, you know, their, their global business operations over there, you know, time to settlement equals counterparty risk, right? And that can be, that can be even more elevated during market shocks like what we saw over here. Um, you know, I, I think generally in a similar way that the industry navigated the, the shock of the pandemic in, 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 in March and April of last year, uh, as a result of, you know, the Dodd-Frank reforms, Basel III, you know, there was really no, it wasn't a financial shock, it was an economic shock, and firms were well capitalized as a result of all the prior rules that came, right? I think in a similar way, you know, even though this is a much more isolated sort of nuanced topic, the industry is able to handle this. This is really an issue with Robin Hood and anyone else that has, you know, that mm -hmm. they that they had to sort of, um, you know, collateralize those obligations, and they weren't they didn't perhaps have enough net, you know, cash on hand to 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 to, to collateralize those obligations. Um, you know, do I think that it's going to be enough to push the conversation to T plus to, to push the industry to move to T plus one? I don't, I don't know. I think what it ends up doing is it, 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 it gives the folks like DTCC and others that have an interest in seeing budget allocated and, you know, from the regular, from the, the government, as well as the industry, you know, to, if they, if they think they have a solution that's going to move us to a shorter settlement period, T plus one, T plus zero, and they believe that that's going to push the industry forward, get rid of some technology debt, um, you know, reduce some risk, some counterparty risk in the system. You know, there's a lot of people who seem to have put skin in the game on DLT and blockchain, 
And while I don't necessarily think that this problem, that the blockchain solution is not the only solution to this perceived problem, we can solve T plus one or T plus zero with, you know, with solutions other than DLT and blockchain. There's a lot of the industry that's sort of bought into that as being the path of least resistance, pushing us towards more modern technology stacks. So whether or not it's DLT or not, um, I think there are people who are able to make much stronger business cases now than they were able to do in December, that this needs to be a priority. So we'll see, we'll see how that plays itself out over the next year or two. Um, so not to, you know, but it's not to be lost that the industry has a lot of other things they're dealing with. That leads me to the next question. Then it was a good leg in on something that we're dealing with and something obviously that's close to JR and I is, you know, the rise in off exchange trading and retail. Um, obviously you talked about the, beginning of the pandemic last year. Obviously, we're still in it. We're all three of us are at home as we record this. But um, what, what do you think, you know, as you go talk to your constituents, what the main, you know, the main driver in the surge of off exchange trading is? is, is it all about just retail people being home and fucking bored and opening up accounts? Or, you know, what are you hearing out there? Well, it depends on on who we're talking to, I suppose. If we're you know if we're talking to the institutional participants, right? Off exchange trading for them means a couple of things. Obviously, institutional block you know block trading over the counter is you know is where we started here. Um, and and then on the other side of the equation, when we talk to retail uh, folks and the retail content, you know that's a growing part of the marketplace. And of course, we should be clear. You know, anybody listening to this that works at a, at a mutual fund or, you know, or some sort of institutional money manager will rightly so recognize that the folks trading on Robinhood is not retail, right? Those are retail day traders, right? Yes. Active retail day traders. Yeah. These are not folks that the mutual funds represent retirement funds, right? The traditional long, you know, buy and hold, you know, retirement investor. We're talking about, you know, you know the, the active day trading component, which, you know, we can debate whether, you know, where they sit in a potential pecking order of who we should be, who the SEC should be championing their, their needs. But um, as more and more people are taking more control of the investment process and whether or not they're, instead of playing, you know, Super Mario Brothers or whatever, the, or, 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 you know, uh, a Minecraft or whatever it is, they're opening up Robinhood or whatever it is um uh there's much more of an active community trading retail on you know for better or for you worse you can tell that, you're my age when you're referring mario super brothers. mario what, brothers what, right <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. epic game I, I epic remember game mario brothers. but my exactly. kids would look at me like what is it the what pizza joint about? Yeah. right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sorry. look you know it's not it's not law i shouldn't be lost to anybody that what we're seeing right now is not that dissimilar similar but different than what we saw in the late 90s with the dot-com bubble yep. right people mm-hmm. opening up their their day trading accounts and you know deciding i'm going to make a bet on home depot today Right. Um, well, so. and that's what I think a lot of people are worried about uh, is that there is, uh, with all of this, you know, these new platforms, which um, uh, granted have opened up um, trading um, to a whole new uh, generation and class of people, made it easier than ever before, all kinds of, uh, you know, new fancy gimp- uh, gadgetry um, and uh, gimmicks to encourage people to trade more. Um, but uh, there aren't many clear guardrails uh, around how it is people do that um, when it's all self-directed. Um, I, I just noticed that and it didn't end speak- too well in the '90s, did it? No, right. it didn't. Yeah, GameStop. I just has had another little uh, a little spurt, another rally. Um, so 
it, it obviously, people who are clever enough to figure out when to get in or get out or how to game the system um, will obviously do well, but you do worry that there's an awful lot of people that are going to be burned in the process. You know, and, I, 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 I always have CNBC on to my left, like all of us, right? Sort of watching what's going on. And, you know, I, I Mr. Wonderful, not, not giving anything, you know, no, no, not, he, he, he rightly so said, it's an expensive learning lesson. It's expensive lesson, right? If they're going to lose money, right? Like, is it Robin's Hood, you know, job to protect, you know, protect these investors? Or are they just giving, you know, giving better tools? You know, I tend to, you know, come in that, you know, land in that camp, which is, um, you know, perhaps the lesson here is people need to, before you open up an account to be trading yourself, you know, you really need to understand what you're getting involved with, right? And uh, so I, I, I think, you know, buyer beware, right? Yeah, uh, that I, kind of I, thing. I, I think there's something to be said for that. The problem that I have is that where firms are so obviously and deliberately using very sophisticated uh, selling techniques in order to encourage people to open accounts, encourage people, you know, using sort of inducements that are kind of, that look more like a Vegas casino than, they, than um, sort of a traditional stock market. Um, and that encourage people to trade more and faster uh, uh, that, that maybe there's some obligation um, on the part of those brokers to do some kind of screening or provide some additional disclosure. Um, when you go to all that effort to encourage people, draw people into the net, and then when they end up drowning, just sort of saying, well, it was their choice to do it. Um, they, you know, um, we, 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 we can't be responsible for what you people know, do. You know I hear you. I, I hear you. And, and you know, this is sort of a, one of those other age old questions that I don't think there's any right answer here in terms of whether or not we need to prevent people from themselves. Right. This is a this is a much higher conversation. I will I will sort of, you know, misdirect a little bit right, or redirect a little bit and suggest that. To me, what gets what 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 keeps me up at night about these sorts of issues that we're seeing with GameStop, what really keeps me up at night is of, of what this does to issuer confidence, right? Um, you know, what what does this mean? You know, what is a CFO who's trying to decide whether or not I want to bring my company public and utilize the public or an entrepreneur? I want to use the public markets, um, and I can't explain, you know, why this is happening with GameStop or why or anything else. What worries me the most about what's going on with our public markets is that how much of this is a deterrent for entrepreneurs to utilize the public markets to go public um, and, keep, and, and rather than doing that, they stay private longer. Uh, and alongside of all of this, you see the rise of venture capital, private equity, um, you know, different uh, private markets, right, which are, you know, which we're seeing a whole bunch of new private markets come, you know, come forth over the last couple of years. Um, and the real problem here is for the investing American public, right, as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, different to where my parents or my grandparents would have invested in a company at a 50 million, a company that went public at a $50 million valuation and wrote it alongside, you know, uh, Bill Gates all the way up to in and saving. And that's going to pay for their retirement and pay for their kids' education. And it really helps the American middle class by being able to participate in the growth of the American economy. I think there's, there's a real problem with what we have going on right now. And, you know, at now what we're seeing is, you know, while not to take anything away from the listing exchanges and they're doing what they can to oh, go ahead. Companies. You can take something away. From I, I'm sure. Yeah, I, know, yeah. I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. but I, I won't, I, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Cause I, I mean, yes, for sure. You know um, they're doing what they can with, you know, with listing requirements, 
but when you see it, when you see, you know, the, the focus on, you know, away from sort of figuring out ways to encourage small to mid cap companies to go public at valuations and at stages in their corporate lifestyle style much earlier than they are today, that's a real problem. Um, and that is my biggest fear of what we're seeing going on. Is this just another death by a thousand cuts of a way to, you know, turn companies away from utilizing the public markets? And when you see the number of public listings go down from, I don't know, 10,000 or 8,000 number of listed companies, maybe 20 years ago, now down to about what, I think we're probably around 3,000 to 4,000 names. And the trend, while we do see, you know, the ebbs and flows, a lot of that, are, a lot of listings are ETFs, a lot of the listings now, of course, or SPACs, yep. um, which is a different way to bring companies public, but it's not the same thing as what what I think, what the public good, that if we believe that there's a public good, price discovery, liquidity discovery, and capital formation in our, in our, in our exchanges, um, I would love to see the regulators get back to the basics and figure out what do we need to do to focus on encouraging and strip the rules down or change the rules of the game so that you know, companies are going to come back and list at much earlier stages in their trade life cycle. And frankly, I don't know if the, I don't know if we can do that because I think the toothpaste is out of the tube. You know, Sand Hill Road and the venture capital firms have matured so much, and that process matured so much over the last twenty years. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I I do worry because you know these are things that affect everyone in the in the in the country, right? This is a real issue that I'd love for them to take a focus on. So no, I appreciate that. And I, I want to go back to something you said before, because I thought it was uh, really interesting, kind of like I was asking a question on how buy side and sell side, you know, our constituents are seeing events. And it was it was ironic. And it's 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 something I hadn't thought of in a while. But um, the advent of off exchange trading venues like LiquidNet uh, was driven by the buy side. Great product. No problem there. A lot of times uh, ATSs were originally developed because a broker has the buy order, has the sell order. Why have to send those to an exchange and pay the fees to do it? So it was a very sensical entry into off exchange trading. But now the flip side of it is it's, it's gotten to such an extent. Uh, the buy side view a lot of the liquidity that trades and hits the tape as inaccessible. And that's frustrating. The brokers are have to navigate in an inaccessible market. And it's kind of it's kind of turned into a, a bit of a gong show as a result. So, kind of be, be be careful what you wish for. But just curious what you think about that. You know, the market structure that we have here today was not by design, right? This was you know patchwork, right? Years and years of patchwork. Uh, no one designing a new market structure would ever sort of suggest that that what we have today is ideal. Not to take anything away from. You know, the tagline, it's the most efficient, robust yeah, yeah. in the world, right, et cetera, et cetera, right? And my views don't necessarily represent those of the commission, right? They're so treating me firm. really well here and the food is very good. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, but I think it's a fair question, right? Um, and I don't think, despite what, you know, what uh, they, they thought about, you know, limiting off exchange trading in Europe with MIFID II rules and, and however they come up with those percentages of how much to restrict and, and whatnot, which is very controversial as we know with MIFID II, you know, I don't think we know how much off exchange trading is too much um, or too little, but I, I do think you know, a lot of this stems from uh, NMS, right? And I yeah. think we, it's, it's overdue and I, I'm, I'm, I appreciate, you know, we keep talking over and over and over again about holistic reviews of market structure. Uh, and we had the equity market structure advisory committee that Brad participated on, um, you know, but 
you know, what came out of it? What did we really do a holistic review of NMS or, or do we just sort of say we need to test more? Um, but I, I don't know what the right answer is in terms of what the role of over the count, you know, uh, OTC trading is in, in the context of, uh, of anything, even blocks for that matter, right? You can make the argument that, um, which I've heard some people say, we have, a, we have a, a reverse market as a consequence of NMS. We have an inverse market where the small participant, right? The retail day trader gets a better deal than the wholesaler, right? That you can trade at a better price if you trade in small increments than if you buy in large sale. No other market that I can think of generally works like that, right? The more quantity you buy, the better price you're going to get from their counterparty, right? But in our market, you have its inverse. And that's a consequence of NMS, right? That's just a consequence of NMS and all the other rules that, and ATS and, 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 and before that. Um, so I do think that it, it, it's, it, it's worthy. And like a lot of people keep saying, we need to take another look at an NMS and decide, you know, who does, who do the rules, you know, whose interest do the rules serve best? And is it serving, you know, the, 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 do, do they, do they support the needs of the, you know, of, of, of what the market is supposed to serve or who, who the market is supposed to serve. And um, so it's hard to know where to start, you know, where do we start because we don't want to screw anything up or as Ronan would say, fuck anything up, you know, but. Um, oh, you I know, don't think Ronan would ever use that kind of language. I can't believe ever, even ever. suggest it. This, this ever. podcast does not that, stand for such that. language. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, it's 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 interesting. Uh, I don't know if we'll see these problems solved in my lifetime, but uh, I hope one can hope. I hope. I hope. Mm-hmm. So, John, you want to hit the next topic because this is a this is a saucy one, and we we did a podcast on it before. A saucy one, saucy one, as you might say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, are you waiting for me? Oh yes. Uh, so late. <laughs> you looked like you wanted to jump cue, in. There. I go well. Thank you. The cue the next question. So um, <laughs> interested to get your thoughts on best execution. People always love to talk about best execution. It's kind of like you know this uh, everybody's favorite topic, but nothing ever really seems to move anywhere. Um, but uh, I think there's increased urgency around the question. So interested to get your thoughts, particularly with a new SEC regime coming in that um, may be likely to be more activist um, on things like this. Where, where do you think the regulators may go on that? There's a lot there, right? Uh, with Best X, this is not this is not a simple topic. Uh, obviously, let's see. There's, there's, there's it's a, a yes lot, or no a answer. A lot of questions. <laughs> lot, yes or no answer. There's, I mean, Please, where do I start with that? Yes where, or no. where do I start with I, I watched X? this hearing last week, and you just go yes yeah, or no. Exactly. Yes or no. Exactly. Yes or no. Yes or no. You know, I, I, I would say. You know, there's two types of best X, right? There's the check off the box best X that you're meeting the letter of the law and you're actually doing what has to be done and you're, you're doing your TCA to meet your board uh, or, or, or regulators. And then there's best X where is the trader worth his salt? Right. Is he is he doing what he needs to do in order to get the best price for his customer? And, you know, what what defines best X for the trader sitting in that seat isn't always exactly the same. You don't need the same tools and the same reports or the same processes required to prove best X to a regulator or to whatever a regulator's, uh, you know, opinion is, or you know, about what best X is. Um, you know, it, it's 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 hard to know whether or not they're going to really come in and make more changes because ultimately every time they make another change to whatever it is, the best X, it means two things. It means, 
you know, either they actually say this is what you need to do, right? Things like uh, uh, things like NMS with um, order protection rule and 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 locked and cross markets and all those sorts of things. Uh, either rules of how people should trade, rules in terms of how they need to disclose what's going on, either in the trading process or the execution process of how they of how the, the counterparty did that. Um, or disclosure, right? Uh, or more greater disclosures, right? But do any of those three things actually have much to do with what the trader means for best best X, right? Doing all you know things best related. So I prefer the European version of best execution, right? All things you know in the best interest of my customer, principle based approach to best execution. That's my preference, and I think most traders probably prefer that as well. I mean, I mean, you'd, you'd like to think most traders prefer that. Um, so. I do think part of that is taking hold a little bit here. Um, we did see greater, you know, greater disclosures required for Rule 606, and I think right now the industry is busy trying to digest right all this new data that's coming out of Rule the upgrades to Rule 606 last year. I think it was last year, right? I think it was last year, right? Um, that those rule that those came out. Um, you know, as far as making changes to Best X, either because of the changing regime or because of current events, you know. I don't think that a new, you know, Gary or whoever comes in is going to come in and sort of say, we're going to, you know, we're going to change everything up, right? I, I think they come in, fortunately, with first do no harm approach to sort of regulation, sometimes to a fault, right? And we can, and we have, you know, pilots and pilots and pilots at that to no end, right? Uh, pilots for the sake of having pilots. But, um, you know, if anything, I think I'd like to think that they're going to start looking at what do we, what is the time to roll back, right? What can we do to improve best execution, not by putting new rules in place, but maybe it's time. And somebody with Gary's focus on, you know, on understanding, and he's a real wonk on market structure. Maybe we will actually finally see, you know, a, a visit to things like repealing order protection rule or locked in cross markets, and and maybe start thinking about how do we move the move the needle back a little bit towards a preferred market structure to serve those 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 public goods price discovery liquidity discovery and capital formation so i don't think we're likely to see anything to best x other than maybe a real finally see a real look at it's time to to change nms nice so now now is the question of questions now is the most important question concentrate focus think focus name for us and tell us Mm. why Mm. what is your favorite wall street movie um yes or no why and why yes or no (laughs) I, I thought about this and I realized, you know, it's not exactly a movie about Wall Street, um, but one of my favorites here uh, is the 1973 film starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford called The Sting. Do you all oh, know? Yeah, of you course. Know, I know Sting, about The Sting, right? Yeah. Right. Fantastic movie. I think it won like six or seven Academy Awards. You know, and, and you know, first of all, I, I love a movie. You know, I just I love just about any movie having to do you know, showcasing a game of high stakes poker, right? I mean, we all love rounders and any of the other games where there's some kind of poker game, and there's a whole bunch of sequences there about poker, right? But in The Sting, you know, it's set in the 1930s, and in, and these two guys, Robert Redford and Paul Newman, you know, they decide to seek revenge on a big time Chicago mafia boss played by Robert Shaw, right? And why? Because he ordered the killing of one of their con friends, right? So they they decided to get revenge and. You know, um, it prov- this movie, there's a scene in the movie that provides um, uh, a very sobering, you know, or illustrative example of how speed advantage over access to data is enough to provide traders an edge, right? Or, or gamblers an, an edge here, right? And, and what happened was Robert Redford convinced Robert Shaw to bet alongside him and gained his confidence because he had set himself up with 
early access to, you know, to out to an out of state horse race. And, and, and then of course he staged a winning gambling bet based on that information. So, nice. you know, regardless of whichever page you land on the debates about HFT or latency arbitrage or whatever, you know, this scene and this movie is one of a few examples in the cinema that sort of showcases the importance of access to market moving information. You know, yeah, you definitely, you definitely gave the most esoteric one and probably the best, uh, That's that. I think that might be the first movie someone suggested that I haven't seen. So I guess I should check mm. it out. Oh, it's a classic. It's classic. Oh, you haven't seen sequel. that? Oh, what? You're too. You're too young. Well, tell you what. Before well, you, before you, before you, before you, give me something. You know, it, this is a bit of a role reversal for me doing this podcast, as you probably know. You know, I'm the research analyst at IT Group, and usually mm -hmm. I'm the one asking questions as you know, as we interview folks in the industry, and I'm or I'm the one up moderating or doing the fireside chat. So. If it's all right, I have a question for you. I'm going to turn around and ask you all a oh, question. That's I not think, allowed. I'm no way. Uh, well, yes well, or no, John? Right. Yes <laughs> or no, yes or no. And I, I don't right. think most listeners probably may not know the answer to this. So that's why I sort of want to ask and hear it from the mm -hmm. horse's mouth. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd love to hear, you know, why boxes and lines? Mm. Oh, Ronan knows that. John's the horse. <laughs> <laughs> I am not the horse. Yeah, at which end of the horse, Ronan? All right. Uh, uh, go ahead. Do you uh, want to tell, tell the story, John? I'll tell you the story. I think I think we might have covered it in the first first episode, Spencer, but people probably wouldn't. I missed that it because mm -hmm. it was just John and I just mm -hmm. uh, you know spitballing. Yeah. But mm -hmm. essentially, it came from uh, back in RBC when I first joined RBC. I had come from a networking career and not a trading career, and I sat right on the trading floor in front of everybody trading or building out algorithms, etc. And um, I was telling people about latency and data centers. This is 2009, so it was fairly novel uh, on the sell side, business side of things anyway. And uh, someone was making fun of me and they see like nothing got to do with trading, but all these network diagrams that look like boxes and lines. And I got this silly sort of nickname as a uh, boxes and lines guy. So uh, mm -hmm. I'm Irish. <laughs> uh, we carry a chip on our shoulder. Revenge is best served cold. And I said, fuck it. We're going to name the podcast based on that stupid nickname I got. There you go. But, you know, it actually is a very profound metaphor for Thank you, modern electronic trading. Uh, Take yeah. it away. Hor uh, uh, I mean, you know, it's all it's not about human <laughs> management or interaction. It's basically just a bunch of boxes and like boxes and lines. Actually, you know, if, if you say take it away, horse, and you call your friend horse, it's like an Irish expression. It's not as negative as I made it sound. It's kind of mm. like, take it away, buddy. Take it away, horse. I'm not even <laughs> making that up. I don't That's, believe that. I, I swear to God. Day. I don't I swear believe to God. that for a minute. Spencer no Midland, been a great guest. You're going to get yourself your very own pair of boxes <laughs> and lion socks. Good night. Over and out, boys and girls. Thank you. Over and out. and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.